Hark the bardic paladin Who sings and plays again He tells the tales of glory And weaves a magic story He'll join you at your table And ask you to share a fable Heroes of humble origin Villains who must be fought again No matter their skill or prowess The people in life are countless so we pray you heed our request. Enjoy this tale of sidekicks and sidequests. Hello, and welcome to our second panel-style episode of our series of discussions that we're calling Parlays at the Platter. The goal of this type of show is to invite guests of the podcast who share a similar field of expertise or passion to invite them to come together and have a lovely hour or so on the topic. Our topic for this panel is entitled Tolkien, Catholicism, and Dungeons and & Dragons, and seeks to find the intersection of these three things. While I don't think I will always need to do this, I think it's important to make an important disclaimer at the top of this. So, I'm a Catholic, surprise, and the panelists I've invited are all practicing Catholics. You out there listening may not care, or you may find this fact to be upsetting. Uh, no judgments, we're all human after all, but I hope that through the course of this discussion, you will at least have a window of insight into our shared worldview. This doesn't mean you have to believe what we believe, we understand you may not agree with us, but everything we speak tonight will be in line with the magisterium, the teaching authority of the Catholic Church, and if I get something wrong, I definitely hope that someone will point it out to me in the course of this discussion. The human elements and institutions within the Catholic Church have had issues and problems historically and into the present day, and we do not for a minute want to forget that, so we are all sinners and none of us are perfect. We stand by, pray for, and encourage support for all victims of abuse in its many forms. We are the body of Christ, and when one part of the body is hurting, the body responds to help with the head of the church, Christ himself, instructing and guiding his church. So the point of this discussion is not to open up the floodgates to vitriol and anger and frustrations for individuals who have uh, committed heinous crimes that demand justice nor any biases that people may hold because of theology, dogma, or personal reasons and expectations. I realize that the people who are initially going to be hearing this as an early access Patreon reward most likely won't have a problem with this. I'm putting this disclaimer here uh, for when this episode is publicly released as an early Christmas present on the RSS feed. So hello from the past, right before Halloween. Uh, Merry Christmas, and remember that Christ is the reason for the Christmas season. I'm joined by three wonderful guests of the podcast. Those of you at the wealthy and aristocratic levels of patronage on the Patreon will get to hear this early release. To begin my introduction of our panel, my first guest is the Cardinal Francis George Professor of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute. She is also a visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is the author of Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages, Apologetics, Christian Imagination, and Integrated Approach to Defending the Faith, Tales of Faith, A Guide to Sharing the Gospel Through Literature, and Not God's Type, an Atheist 
academic lays down her arms. Her newest book, Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography, was just released this year on September the 2nd in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the death of our beloved J.R.R. Tolkien. She is also a published poet and a subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies. Her academic work focuses on the writings of the Inklings, especially C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. She will have her individual debut on this podcast in December. And so you in the past are not going to hear it yet, but you in the future will get to hear her soon. So while she has been to the real life Eagle and Child, where Lewis and Tolkien once frequented, we're sure she'll enjoy her stay here with us in the Levitating Platter tonight. You can drink your fancy ales, you can drink them by the flagon, but the only brew for the brave and true is Dr. Holly Ordway. My second guest is a writer, theater maker, educator, and father of two. He writes about God, superheroes, Shakespeare, and other topics at the intersection of religion and popular culture at First Things, The New Criterion, The American Interest, The Weekly Standard, The New Atlantis, National Review, Commonweal, Acculturated, Altia, and The American Conservative. He graduated from Yale in 2015 with a BA in English and Theater Studies, and then served as a junior fellow and assistant editor at First Things Magazine. He's also worked with Great Hearts Academies and Magnificat Magazine. He got his first children's book published recently called Saintly Creatures, 14 Tales of Animals and Their Holy Companions that was published as of September the 18th of this year. He is also a game designer and the brains behind Cloven Pine Games, which has produced a number of role-playing games, including Autumn Triduum, The Great Soul Train Robbery, Vow of the Night's Aspirant, and Back Again from the Broken Land. You will recognize this guest as the creator of Jasper, the Frog Errant, featured in episode number 65. Fell deeds awake, now for wrath, now for ruin, and the Red Dawn, fourth Alexi Sergeant! Thank you very much. Good to be here. And finally, our third panelist is a work colleague and one of the finest D&D players that I know. In her own right, she is an accomplished artist and manages and creates designs for books and major brands. She's an avid gamer, enjoying titles like Mass Effect and Dragon Age. She loves to draw art of her favorite characters from D&D and various video games. A nerdy mom at heart, she has two little bundles of joy now. Uh, when she's not playing D&D, she's enjoying her life with her family in Buffalo, New York. You will recognize this guest as the creator of Thistle, the Sky Elf Painter, featured in episode number 70. Alas, not me, Lord. Shadow lies on me still. Look not to me for healing. I am a shield maiden, and my hand is ungentle. She is Catherine Spittler. Well, there we go. So there were the introductions. How do you think they all went? Well, I, I was a bit I was a bit sort of blown away by being sung into my intro. So that left me so flabbergasted that I couldn't do my usual. Hello. Good to be on the show. <laughs> so my apologies for that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he sang. <laughs> I am the Bardic Paladin after all on this podcast. So I have to throw in the music. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll get going then with the questions. So I, I've prepared a list of questions. And of course, I've invited the panelists themselves if they had their own ideas of questions, whether they were pre-written or they're just spur of the moment. You know, we're going to have this opportunity to talk and figure out what this whole thing is like between Tolkien and Catholicism and Dungeons and Dragons. So obviously, this is a Dungeons and Dragons themed podcast. And I think to help give us all an idea, a pulse of where we lie, 
uh, with our experience. Could we all go down the line and kind of say what our experience uh, with the game is? And I'll, I'll lay myself bare first. Uh, my only experience with Dungeons and Dragons specifically uh, is within 4th edition and 5th edition. And as of the time of this recording, I'm coming up on my 13th anniversary of ever having played uh, Dungeons and Dragons for the very first time. Well, I will um, come in and say that I must be the creaky middle-aged person amongst here because uh, um, I have have not played Dungeons & Dragons for probably at least 35 years, <laughs> which uh, kind of dates me back to, uh, well, uh, I played a little bit of Dungeons & Dragons then Advanced D&D, and I... Um, I remember seeing the second edition handbook come out um, and that, you know, I've, I've still, I've still got somewhere in my basement, the first edition monster manual with like the kind of hand drawn, super geeky um, pictures in the front. And uh, so I, uh, I have limited experience playing because I was um, the only person I knew basically who was interested in D and D. And so most of my time was spent creating these large modules and masterminding being a dungeon master and making these adventures that um that then no one would play um but it was still it was fun to it was fun to conceptualize it it was and uh that was that was my my main experience was the proto dungeon master you know getting into it that way maybe i'll go ahead and take this opportunity now and pull back the curtain because one person on this panel has already played a game with you <laughs> because I had Dr. Holly run one of the major faction NPCs in the game that we played. This is true. That's right. <laughs> so you have had a little bit in 5th edition, but it was mainly an asynchronous sort of like, I would send you emails or messages and be like, hey, the players are doing this, so what do you think you should do? And then you would tell me, and I'd be like, oh, great, cool. And then I would throw problems in the faces of the players and be like, well, Savannah Poho here thinks that uh, you know the Colony Arcanum's goals are this. So what do you say to that? True, I had I had um, you had done such a great job of creating that world that I was sort of thinking of it. This is Kurt's world. I wasn't thinking of it. I actually was not thinking of it as being Dungeons and Dragons. So well done, Kurt, in creating a world that was just so convincing as its own its own world. But yes, that was that was jolly fun. <laughs> well, cool. Yeah. So, Mr. Alexi, what's uh, what's your experience like? I have played a lot of different role-playing games and a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons. I've played some fifth edition D&D uh, &D with friends and fellow gamers, um, but I have tended to play more independent role-playing games and also create more independent role-playing games, as you mentioned when you cited my Cloven Pine games work. And then finally, Miss Catherine? Yes, I think uh, I must be the baby of the group as far as I, I started playing only a few years ago. Um, I started playing in person with um, uh, Wizards of the Coast has a organized play league called uh, Adventures League and um, that's how I got started and then uh, yeah it's a, only fifth edition um, and I've followed artists who I without knowing it um, loving their work and it turns out they did art for like second edition and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's uh, really fun to finally play uh, the game that inspired so much of my favorite art growing up. So, yeah. There we go. Now that you know the credentials of our panelists, I think we can now begin uh, these questions in earnest. So do you think that Tolkien would have liked playing Dungeons and Dragons, considering that he passed away just before the hobby exploded in popularity? Well, I think 
I think probably yes. Or if he didn't enjoy it, I think he would have. I think he would have approved, because uh, he talks about writing his Legendarium as as creating mythology for England, and and he envisions it as being something that other hands and other minds can get involved with. And of course, he wasn't thinking about role playing, but. The interactive element is something that had its place in the creation of stories to begin with. He would tell some of these stories to his children, um, and even some of their toys, you know, end up becoming characters. Like Tom Bombadil was originally one of the children's um, is a Dutch doll. So you, know, you wonder where did Tom Bombadil? Really? Come? Why is he so straight? Well, he was originally a toy. Um, and, and I had no idea. Yes, and Bilbo. Um, in The Hobbit, um, was originally named Bingo after his daughter Priscilla's toy bear. So he was originally Bingo Baggins. And we can all be grateful that he changed that because Bingo Baggins just know, no. no. <laughs> there's that sort of interactivity. Um, and then the fact that, well, for instance, his son Michael had a, a fear of spiders. And so he put, you know, one of the reasons he put in this scene about Bilbo fighting the spiders in. Um, in The Hobbit is to kind of help him get over that. So I think that that sort of idea of interactivity would have resonated with him so that even if he didn't want to play it, I think I think that he would have, yeah, thought it was a kind of a cool idea. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think my initial instinct was to say Tolkien would clearly have been the GM who spends hours and hours preparing, you know, the maps and the lore uh, and the real question is, would he actually enjoy playing it? But the, that element of interactivity in the creation of Le- Legendarium is really important to remember too. So maybe maybe Tolkien would have been running D and D for the younger Tolkien's. If you haven't seen the YouTube video that Matt Colville did, where he explains the difference between a, a railroad campaign and a sandbox campaign, you know he takes on being J.R.R. Tolkien and he describes The Hobbit as a sandbox game, but then The Lord of the Rings as a railroad campaign. So it's a very fun oh. video as well if you've never seen it. For my part, I I would like to think so. I am kind of in agreement with the others. Holly already touched on the. Uh, just the nature of kind of improvised and expandable storytelling within that world. And actually funny you mentioned Alexi about like maps and stuff like that. He, Tolkien himself did illustrations and made maps to kind of help him, you know, envision the story better in the locations. And I think there's, I was looking on um, the uh, Tolkien Estates website for, you know, kind of looking at this artwork again. And sure enough, there's an example of a map on grid paper. Now it's the whole, like continent, but it, it immediately struck me as like, oh, this this is totally like, I've seen maps like this on a game table. So yeah, I think he would have enjoyed it. Is it the map where he's burned a small hole accidentally with his pipe, like right around um, Fangorn Forest? Oh, I, I I know what you're talking about. I don't know if it's that exact one, but I I, I have seen that. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I think that might maybe cause him some concern is, you know, whether people who if they were, the question would be whether they were playing a game set in his in his legendarium or just playing them in general. Mm. Um, I think the idea of the interactive storytelling, absolutely. I think that if he were envisioning people playing a game within his own world, I think he would. I think he would again be fine with that. But I think his expectation would be that it would be consistent with his basic values, his basic worldview. Um, that's really mm. 
so the whole structure of Middle Earth, and that you couldn't, for instance, have characters, evil characters, winning the day, and I think, and it still be consistent with his ethos. Well, okay, they could win the day, um, mm -hmm. but I think he would probably find it a bit repugnant to think that you could play a character as being evil and and kind of aim to win win that way. I think that would grate a bit against his understanding of the kind of the point of the stories. Mm. That's a bit of a tension that might might arise. I do know that there is a 5e compatible product that's out that's called Adventures in Middle Earth. And so it's basically a, a, a skin that you can put on the fifth edition mechanics. And there's a couple of other concepts that are introduced. But yeah, basically nowadays with modern Dungeons and Dragons, you can play in the realms of Middle Earth and have your own characters. But there's more to do with like corruption and stuff. I have a couple of the books, but I haven't actually sat down and played a version uh, of that game and i'm sure you know through history like collectible trading card games and stuff like that there have been other attempts at as dr ollie was alluding to with uh getting in playing in the realm of the legendarium but his expectation perhaps of like well you should be good characters you shouldn't want to be uh evil characters which is interesting this gets up what's going to be one of the big questions of this conversation which is what mm -hmm. type of a debt does dungeons and dragons owe to tolkien and does Dungeons and Dragons, you know, writ large, considered as an entity, get Tolkien, right? Like, or is it only at mm -hmm. sort of the surface level that we have a Tolkien-esque influence on D&D as a game, right? Do do the themes get through, or is it just elves and dwarves and magic rings with, you know, a totally different ethos undergirding it? That'll segue into the question here. To quote from the Wikipedia page on Dungeons and Dragons... The world of D&D was influenced by world mythology, history, pulp fiction, and contemporary fantasy novels. The importance of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit as an influence on D&D is controversial. The presence in the game of halflings, elves, half-elves, dwarves, orcs, rangers, and the like, as well as the convention of diverse adventurers forming a group, draw comparisons to these works. The resemblance was even closer before the threat of copyright action from Tolkien Enterprises prompted the name changes of Hobbit to Halfling, Ent to Treant, and Balrog to Balor. For many years, Gygax played down the influence of Tolkien on the development of the game. However, in an interview in the year 2000, he acknowledged that Tolkien's work had a, quote, strong impact, though he also said that the list of other influential authors was long. So do you think Tolkien's influence over D&D is controversial? Why or why not? I think not at all controversial. I think yeah. the only reason they're saying controversial is to try to, to say, no, no, we're not actually plagiarizing. No, no. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's obvious that it's it's heavily influenced from, from Tolkien. Absolutely agree. <laughs> yeah, in, insofar as Tolkien you know, invented the modern fantasy genre, right? <laughs> like they're clearly drawing him. They're drawing on other things too, right? There's... There's a lot of, you know, Conan the Barbarian and, you know, a kind of pulp fantasy stuff in the mix. But clearly Tolkien is a, you know, massive influence. And the question is just exactly what was derived from him. But I do think, you know, what you, I think it was what you brought up, Alexi, um, or maybe, maybe it was Kurt too. Um, I think, I do think that the influence is largely skin deep. And 
I did my actually doctoral dissertation on the, on the history of the fantasy novel, the modern fantasy novel, mm. um, and looked at Tolkien and what came before and what came after. Um, this was sort of the pre, the precursor to my Tolkien's modern reading book. Um, nice. But one of the things that I saw was that there had been, you know, a fair amount of diversity in fantasy before Tolkien. Um, but oddly enough, I would make the argument that Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is so good and so amazing that it actually has been like a black hole for um, American fantasy literature in particular, um, because it has it has sort of warped the whole field, at least it's beginning to come out of it now. But if you look at the 1970s, 1980s, everything's a Tolkien knockoff. Mm. Because, you know, like Ballantine books and whatnot, they're just like, okay, how can we sell another gajillion copies just like Lord of the Rings? Well, let's make something that's just like Lord of the Rings, we won't get sued. So we'll change, we'll change some stuff, we'll rehash the story. And you get all this sort of pulpy, you know, you know, David Eddings and, and Terry Brooks and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, and it's all very generic and it's, it's all recycling the same sorts of quasi medieval world, quasi medieval tropes. You've got a quest, you've got some unlikely heroes, you have this mixed fellowship, um, you've got elves and dwarves and, and they become set in these characteristics that Tolkien has set them in. But of course they don't have the nuance, right? Um, mm. everything in, in middle earth has got all these deep roots that these, these guys don't have. And I think it's that surface level stuff that we're getting with, with D and D, uh, which is fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun stuff, but it's very much, it's the trappings rather than the, really the, the heart of it, I would think. Perhaps this is the moment for me to plug one of my uh, own role-playing games. Uh, so, Sure, yeah, go for I, it. I, you know, thought about this a lot. Like, what is it that's what is it that we love most in Tolkien and is that present in, say, Dungeons & Dragons by default? Is that supported by the mechanics of Dungeons & Dragons, I guess is what I'm really saying. And I'd argue no. I'd argue, you know, I love the moments of fellowship, the uh, kind of moments of hoping against hope, right? Characters pulling together when all seems darkest, characters offering encouragement to one another, Sam carrying Frodo, you know, in the land of Mordor itself. And that isn't necessarily what Dungeons and Dragons is concerned with, right? If you're counting your hit points and seeing if you can you know, add up your damage per round to, you know, defeat the the big Balrog or troll, right? That's that's kind of more the surface level of, of Tolkien you're uh, imitating. And so I wanted to create a game that was specifically about all those moments I love the most in Tolkien uh, that, that aren't exactly D&D &D moments. So Back Again from the Broken Land is the name of this game. We wear the influence right there on the title. It's a game where you play as small adventurers making the long walk home from an epic war. So heavily inspired by, uh, say, you know, Bilbo's homeward journey or Frodo and Sam's homeward journey, right? Like you are these hobbit-like people who've become part of this great and epic adventure. And the game picks up with you uh, on your homeward journey. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you didn't get picked up by the eagles <laughs> after Mount Doom, what if you had to walk home and along the way, you're having a yes, yeah. <laughs> if you have to walk, you know, what do you do? Well, in our game, you you share meals, you kind of reckon with the burdens you're carrying from uh, from the adventures you've gone on, and you 
you'll find ways to to offer what comfort you can to one another to to share your stories perhaps name and clear your burdens it's uh it's not a game where you fight uh, in fact you can your options for when things are dangerous are just to run or to hide uh but it is a game that you know encourages you to think about the kind of emotional and uh, thematic and kind of you know even providential uh side of these uh these fantasy stories and hopefully in that way it gets at some of what what i love and what uh, my wife leah loved most in tolkien because we collaborated on creating back again from the broken land it's really nice it's a you know not a not a super big book or anything i know i i backed the kickstarter on it and so i've got it on my my bookshelf and so yeah i would love to you know find that time to sit down and, and play a tolkien-esque sort of story uh with my friends that's not necessarily the normal like okay we're gonna kick the door down on the dungeon and <laughs> fireball whatever's on the other side of the door yeah thank you very much yeah one of my favorite things is in the process of working on the game you know we realized oh man this this move share a meal is overpowered we have to nerf it because our our first draft our first draft of share a meal was just too powerful fictionally and we had to slightly tone it down but it's still it's still a crucial a crucial move because if you're playing hobbit like characters you know that sharing meals is going to be really important second breakfast 11 z's tea yeah all that good stuff that's kind of the thematic, you know, sort of the thematic elements of Tolkien getting getting into a role-playing game. I was thinking about, you know, if coming at it from a little bit of a different angle, I think there's an opportunity in the, the dungeon master, you know, GM role uh, that you can, in a way, kind of take part in the Tolkienian experience that way. Not so much yeah. in what the Lord of the Rings is, but to kind of get into Tolkien's headspace in terms of creating it. And I think that's something that really appealed to me. And perhaps, you know, since I've I've always loved Tolkien, I've I've read him. I don't I, I don't even know when I first read Tolkien. I just have always known his his works. But I just remember just you know planning out doing these maps, you know, and little coastlines and drawing little you know for not not looking as nice as Tolkien's obviously, um, you know, <laughs> and then just planning these these big complexes and granted i mean the, there were these little dungeon rooms and graph paper with like skeletons in the you know room a and room b or whatever which is you know not very deep but, but the idea of envisioning like a scenario a place and thinking what might be the history of it where might it be um i know for me creatively that was satisfying in itself um and i think it's probably not a coincidence that you know, I've become a Tolkien scholar, lots of different <laughs> threads involved in that. But I think a sort of attraction to that uber detailed creative side, it's part of where there's a connection to D&D and, and role playing games in general, I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll chime in here. You guys have already covered much of what I think. I agree largely that for the most part, it's pretty surface level and I'll say also it has a lot to do with your GM as well as the people you're playing with. I've been in campaigns where it was all hack and slash and loot the dungeon and just, you know, that, that kind of a, a dynamic. But I've also been a player and a DM, very, very lucky to have players who are willing to kind of take a minute and kind of explore these relationships or questions of, you know, morality and those were the times where I felt like, okay, here are echoes of a Tolkien-esque story. 
And I would also say, at least for me growing up, Tolkien was probably, Tolkien and Lewis actually, through Chronicles of Narnia, they were my first exposure to the concept of world building. And then growing up and kind of reading more fantasy and just consuming, you know, media and whatnot and coming up with my own stories that I would, you know, draw to. But then discovering D and D, it was like, oh, here is a system in which, like, there are established settings. There are literally books you can buy and just read and play, and they're wonderful. But it's really when discovering just how it allows one to kind of use the the skeleton, the framework of just the mechanics of the game, and build your entirely own、uh, world and story. And so, in that regard, I think it, it owes a great deal, at least for me, to Tolkien. Just that he, for me, was kind of like. The OG of <laughs> world, but I know he and he he owed so much of his own world building to mythology and and other you know great stories and worlds that other writers had created beforehand. But yeah, yeah, perhaps that's maybe the like best tie-in here that Dungeons and Dragons as a hobby is this big permission to subcreate, right? This this、yes. big permission、exactly. for participants to engage in. Mythopoetic play, right? In in, in myth making,、uh, perhaps that's the best tie into you know, Tolkien's Tolkien's interests and beliefs about human nature. <laughs> he he would, on some level, have to have to approve that myth making is being so encouraged in the people who participate in the hobby. Yeah, and that's you know, and, and looking at the history of the of the genre, I mean, he and Lewis are really the first ones. To develop quite such a fleshed-out world, I mean, yeah, Edison kind of does in Zimiamvia, but in my view, not as successfully by a long shot.、Um, and if you look at other fantasy authors before them, like, yeah, they just don't do that. They they might have a little fantasy world, but to have a whole world like Narnia again with maps、um, and a history, you know, a long history, and to have this, I mean, th- there's nothing like the Legendarium of Tolkien. Ever in any literature, ever.、Um, so you, that you know that in itself, you're right. That is kind of a permission slip. That's a kind of a cool, a cool connection. All right, I wanted to think up of a fun question here. So you know, since halfling and treants and balors, you know, all got name changes because the original Tolkien properties were in the first iterations of the game before they were like, hey, now can't be doing this nonsense. This question. What's another thing from Tolkien's work that early original Dungeons and Dragons should have tried to rip off, and what would they have called it to avoid the wrath of the Tolkien estate? I mean, what's what's left that they didn't that they didn't already try in some way here? <laughs> Maybe it's also just a question of like how deep into the nerddom do you get, where you're like, oh yes, this obscure little short story that he wrote. Yes, they should have used this kind of creature or something. Well, these he doesn't really invent a lot of. Creatures. That's kind of one of the interesting things. Is it's there's such depth and texture to his world, but he he somehow manages to do it without overdoing it. You know, so when you do meet a new being like the like the Ents, it's like wow, you're not meeting a new being every five pages. So I think that there's a kind of economy of 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 that in a sense in in the world. I guess D and D could have had a like you know mysterious song singing you know woods dwelling NPC called Bomb Tombadil. Hmm. <laughs> There we go. His his jacket is yellow and his boots are blue. 
one of the deity figures running around the world of Greyhawk or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, some some ambiguity. There has to be some ambiguity about his exact like metaphysical status. <laughs> mm. I suppose they could have tried to make a, a race out of Gollum and, and made called them the the, the Smeebums or something. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> mm. The corrupted halfling. Exactly. Race. Yes. Oh dear. Ah. Indeed. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, that's pretty cool. I mean, unless they would say, like, oh, that's just a goblin or something like that. That's another small humanoid creature that you can play that's not a halfling, but a goblin or something. At least nowadays in 5th edition, you can play as a goblin character, which is, which is pretty cool. So I guess that's, I mean, total nerd tangent here, right? Like, Tolkien doesn't think goblins and orcs are different, right? Like, he, he, those are just different names for the same type of creature in his world. But kind of from D&D on, everyone's wanted to have a real, like, taxonomy there where like well goblins are smaller and sneakier and orcs are bigger and dumber i think that's kind of a an interest in taxonomy that kind of went beyond what tolkien applied to uh to like that part of his world well the interesting thing about the goblins and the orcs is that they they were really not they were <laughs> not very well thought out um in a sense which is a remarkable thing to say about anything in tolkien's world but it's the only thing uh because the, the goblins in originate in the hobbits and the and the hobbits goblins are straight out of george mcdonald um princess mm. and curdy um books and he acknowledges that um and if you look at that which is one thing i looked at in my book tolkien's modern reading they are very mcdonald goblins and he he just names that straight out that the goblins are mcdonald goblins and that's appropriate for the children's book um and they're a little bit sillier they're a little bit lighter in tone they're mm. dangerous they're still dangerous they get darker mm -hmm. as the book proceeds but i think you can definitely see that their inspiration is the children's literature folklore goblin of mcdonald and then when you get to you know the lord of the rings everything is darker everything is more serious and i think that's one of the reasons that he switched over to using orc because it meant that he was able to make the shift over from like to the right tonal quality for these creatures of Sauron. But I think you, you see some of that baggage still in the very ambiguous moral status of the orcs. Um, and this is something I know, Kurt, you wanted to bring up, so maybe this is a good, a good moment for it. Because uh, people are very exercised over, are the orcs intrinsically evil or not? Are they redeemable or are they permanently corrupted? What are the orcs? And the short answer is that Tolkien himself never figured it out. Hmm. He was troubled by the question of their morality because his worldview being Catholic, he knew that nothing is evil from the beginning. Nothing is created to be evil. So the orcs cannot have been created by Eru Iluvatar as evil beings. They have to be corrupted in some way by Sauron. Well, corrupted from what? Or, alternately, they're not real sentient beings. And that's what he shifts to a little bit later, that they're more like ants. They have a hive mind, in a sense, that Sauron is controlling them. They mimic speech, but they don't have real sentience. So that's one of the reasons why at the end, all the orcs sort of flee mindlessly as if he even uses the analogy of the ants scattering from the, the anthill. But he never he never quite came to terms with it. Uh, and, you know, that's part of the tricky thing about like, what well, what's the moral status of the orcs? Well, Tolkien himself was still figuring that out. 
Yeah, no, I have the question right here. We can jump around and skip around however much we want. So yeah, totally. Uh, I'll go ahead and intro the question so we can yeah continue the fruitful discussion. So D&D and the TTRPG hobby have struggled for the last 50 years with finding compelling, dramatic, and heroic stories, often at the expense of orcs, goblins, the drow, tieflings, and even recently the Hadazi from Spelljammer with tone-deaf storytelling, willful ignorance, and questionable lore implications. People like to cite how Tolkien conceptualized the physical appearance of orcs and the men, the Easterlings and the Haradrim, who allied themselves with Mordor. How do you think Tolkien addressed issues of racism, bioessentialism, and prejudice in his day? And what do you think he would say now to people who are seeking for more inclusive stories in multiple dimensions? Are people wrong to blame Tolkien for when people look at his writings and say, well, if Tolkien said this, then it's okay for me to describe X in a way that is clearly a stand-in for this thing I don't agree with or I have an issue with. Like, because of how Tolkien visualized orcs, for all time, we have to associate orcs as murderous, unintelligent, uncultured humanoids that are always evil, and there's no way to redeem them. Well, I have, I have lots to say on this subject, but so I don't want to be the first, because... Actually, I have a follow-up um, for you, Dr. Holly, because it's admittedly been a few years since I did a full read through of Lord of the Rings but I also grew up with um, the Peter Jackson movies and I'm pretty sure somewhere in there they kind of give an explanation I think it was Saruman who's like do you know how the uh, orcs came to be and he gave the explanation like oh they used to be elves and they were corrupted so it's interesting to hear your insight that it wasn't actually that wasn't actually his intention well that's one of the possibilities see because okay. he, he never he never came to sort of a canonical answer, which is why okay. it's first, we have all these different sort of explorations of it. Um, you know, what were they? And the one about them being not really sentient is is one of his later writings. So I think that's where he was trending towards. Mm. But it's it's hard to say he was playing around. He was playing around mm. with it. It seems like this is this is a little bit of, so. I'm just going to link it to a totally different fantasy series for a moment. Um, the Redwall series by Brian Jakes is a very fun series for young adults. Um, mm -hmm. These kind of stories of medieval-esque adventures in a world of woodland creatures. And there's a sort of similar, like, bioessentialist question that eventually emerges because it's like the, all the mice and squirrels and hares are good guys and all the rats and stoats and weasels are bad guys. You know, is is this saying like you know good and evil are sort of inbred you're like or you know kind of gene deep right and i think the answer is no not exactly because they are kind of beast fable characters right where the the fact someone is you know a like brave but overmatched you know young warrior means they should be depicted as a mouse and the fact someone is a cruel and ravenous tyrant means they should be depicted as a rat right like the kind of things that we associate with the animals are kind of being put on the characters by the way they are made characters. And that kind of becomes problematic when it's a like multi-generational fantasy epic, right? <laughs> and that, and it feels like something similar is happening with orcs where on some level they are just sort of representation of evil, right? Like they serve as foot soldiers of the enemy and stand in for just the forces of darkness, even like spiritual darkness, right? But then because it's because Lord of the Rings is, you know, a a work with a kind of historical feel, right? And like has this, you know, legendarium it's connected with that that gives a sense of like, ah, you know, big like political 
change over the course of all the ages of Middle Earth, then it stops feeling totally comfortable to just say like, ah, there are whole groups of uh, beings that sort of serve like a, a symbolic function. And we start asking those questions of like, wait, what happens if an orc, you know, doesn't want to serve sorry like are there is there such a thing as like free will for creatures of this sort and it feels like there's a kind of in both these instances some of those questions arise because multiple genres are intersecting in the work uh in a way that doesn't necessarily leave an easy leave an easy answer but which kind of explains why we get those kind of strong strong associations of negative traits with one group yeah, I think that's a that's a good point, Alexi. There's the mythic mode, you know, in which certain aspects of the human experience are being projected onto, you know, mm. different characters and different. I mean, the elves, for instance, the dwarves. You know, Tolkien himself talked about how they are, in a certain sense, you know, reflections of different aspects of the human experience. Yeah. So you know, the orcs themselves are then representing a certain kind of brutality. Mm. Um, but it's interesting that you know, you know, it becomes more problematic when you have a generational thing. It's worth noting that we never ever hear about orc families. Right. There are no little orcs. Mm. Um, never anywhere in the legendarium, to my knowledge, is there any indication of there being sort of a reproduction of of orcs. And so you do again get that kind of insectile um, or corrupted. They're not a kind of species in the same way that other other creatures are. Um, so that's that's an interesting point. But I want to connect this to to some of the other things that we, we tend so easily to look at just the orcs and at one or two perhaps unfortunate, not perhaps, some unfortunate phrasings that he used in describing them. But I think there's a couple contextual points that are important. One is to look at Tolkien in the context of his time and how literature of his time and, and what, what he read when he was growing up, how did those books talk about, for instance, people of color? Hmm. Well, I read those books in order to get a context when I was looking for doing Tolkien's modern reading. Oh my word, <laughs> oh my word, it was revolting. You know, the kind of just outright toe-curling racism in ordinary language like, okay, the, it made you realize we've made a lot of progress. Um, and so it puts a very different slant on the occasional phrasing that's slightly maybe not as it should be when you look at what was totally the norm for talking about people of other races and ethnicities. Like, okay, that's one thing. And then you look at how does Tolkien actually treat human beings or sentient beings who are of other races and cultures. We'll leave aside the orcs because we know the orcs are sort of problematic. Are they, do they have free will? Are they really sentient? We don't know, Tolkien, <laughs> Tolkien didn't really know. But if we look, for instance, at the men of Haradrim, those are the only ones who are from the deep south. A mortar, incidentally, is in the latitude of Italy. Um, and the orcs, incidentally, have a lot to do with Romans. They have a lot of characteristics of, of Romans, ancient Romans, who Tolkien had a very little opinion of. Um, <laughs> So we should think of them as marauding Romans rather than, you know, from the deep south. But the Herodrim, for instance, we have that marvelous picture of Sam seeing the fallen warrior and looking at him with the exotic trappings and the brown skin and thinking, what lies was he told that that brought him here? You know, did he did he really want to be here? It's a very much a, a humanizing view of the other, which is the opposite of, of racist. Or then we have, you know, the wild men, um, Ganbury Gan, um, 
and they're depicted very much as aboriginals mm-hmm. um, and you even have Aomer who's one of the Roharim who's quite racist towards them he's like oh well, what do they know how can they help us and it turns out that they know more than than he does Theoden believes him takes him seriously trusts him they prove to be knowledgeable faithful helpful and then in the end at the very end of the story um Aragorn as king gives them the the forest and says you know this is not your territory the the men of Ro, of Rohan will never they will never hunt you like wild beasts again and i think this is really interesting because tolkien is acknowledging that the men of Rohirrim who are otherwise very heroic have actually a racist past because they have been hunting the wild men like beasts and and treating them as subhuman and there's a reckoning with that within the lord of the rings so i think that's the kind of thing it's important to counterbalance to looking at say the orcs because we have this very sensitive treatment of the genuinely sentient other even when presented as unattractive to the eyes like say of the Rohirrim hmm. and and then the last point is that the Peter Jackson films have messed with people's perceptions because in the books um Tolkien's very clear that a lot of the hobbits are dark-skinned like about a third of the hobbits he says are brown-skinned including Samwise Gamgee exactly um Sam is described multiple times as being brown-skinned so I think arguably in the Lord of the Rings one of the most heroic characters in the entire book is a hobbit of color. <laughs> and we don't yeah. see that wow. because Sean Aston is pasty white. <laughs> <laughs> but much love to Sean Aston, you know, one of the goonies, he's one of oh, the OGs. He's wonderful. So. Sean, he's wonderful. He does a great job portraying Sam, but I think this has blinded people to Tolkien's treatment of race that they think, oh, they see an all white cast of hobbits and they think that Tolkien himself made an all white cast out. Well, no, he didn't. He did definitely didn't. That's a really interesting point. So yeah. then the Amazon show is right when that whole caravan <laughs> of, of halflings are, you know, of color. So everyone was freaking out for no reason. They're actually doing the source material justice. I think the, the bigger question, so we could spend a lot of time talking about Rings of Power. The bigger question <laughs> with Rings of Power casting is, does it make sense, right? Like, because the, they're casting talented actors of many races and that's 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 wonderful. But often, you know, in kind of family groupings that that don't seem to make sense, right? Like the it's treating race as like a you know characteristic you can you can like toggle for any individual character without it affecting their like place in the world and the the families that they're part of. So anyway, it, it was intriguing to me, you know. But uh, but I'm not sure it totally held together, you know, on that level or on other levels <laughs> as a. Uh, derivative work based on uh, based on Tolkien. When uh, Dr. Holly was pointing out like, oh, there's no examples of lineage and stuff like that for orcs or anything. The I got an inkling of an idea with the Jackson Hobbit trilogy. I'm pretty sure that the one orc that went after Thor and Oakenshield is like Azog, I think is his name. And he's described as like the son of another orc or something like that. And uh, that, that's the only instance I have. Of, of thinking of maybe anything in the, like the movie space or something declaring like oh this orc is the son of this other orc or yeah and I would, I would have to double check I'm not sure whether that's in the Hobbit text or not I, I don't know one or the other mm-hmm. um, 
but again, the Hobbit is is the first place that the that the goblins are sketched out, and he's not doing anything mm-hmm. systematic at that point. Yeah, R- Rings of Power has like the really interesting thing of this, you know, father figure for all the orcs, right? Which you know, kind of going with mm-hmm. the like corrupted elves theory. Uh, he's this sort of half elf seeming, you know, proto orc who's leading them, and whether or not that can to- that totally fits in. Tolkien's kind of ultimate conception of the orcs. It made for an interesting element of the show. Uh, I don't know that the show like explored it with the the type of you know insight I might hope that they did, but it had a lot of potential as a you know an addition to the mythology, right? An intriguing one, I guess. How do you think the various films, radio plays, orchestra concerts, staged plays, internet memes, video games, collectible card games, branded tabletop role-playing, and war games, and an Amazon Prime billion-dollar show of Tolkien's Legendarium affected all aspects of popular culture and media? Well, we were kind of just getting into this with uh, some thoughts about the way various adaptations have portrayed elements of uh, The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't go very far without scrolling through somewhere like Facebook, Instagram, or X, Twitter, and you know not see some sort of delightful Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson meme across your feed. You're like, ah, yes, this brings joy to me. Yeah, I mean, but besides being highly memeable, <laughs> um, it kind of goes back a little bit to what we're talking about, like its influence on role playing games. I mean, just from an aesthetic point of view. Any, at least in my lifetime, any show or movie or any visual representation, for example, let's take elves. Well, prior to a certain time in media, when you said elf, you would think this little, tiny, mischievous person with big shoes and, you know, goofy ears. But after Tolkien, at least my own perception of it is that all of a sudden, when you say elf, oh, it's not Santa's elves. It's the beautiful, tall, ethereal, gorgeous, you know, person. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's across the board um, from, like you said, other uh, tabletop games, card games to, you know, these huge budget, you know, shows. And uh, yeah, it's just... Dragon Age. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's totally one of them. Yeah. Um, and on all the other kind of or Skyrim, yeah, all the other like classic, you know, elves, dwarves, um, even you know to a certain extent how certain humans and their cultures are, are portrayed. Even though we have this vast, you know, field of mythology of our own, you know, outside of Tolkien to, to draw upon, but there's always just a little, little spice in there that's that's always to me smells of you know Tolkien's influence. Anyway, part of it might even date back before the Lord of the Rings, because one of the things that Tolkien did that shaped culture was to make Beowulf into a big deal again. Hmm. When he was, Mm. before he did a major lecture on Beowulf, the monsters and the critics in uh, the 1930s. And before then, Beowulf was a very disregarded text. It was only used as a sort of vocabulary list for old English vocabulary words. People like, oh, it's like monsters in it. How childish. And Tolkien said, no, this is a great story. And and he changed the entire face of, of old English scholarship by putting Beowulf back on the map as a piece of literature. And we can take that for granted because, I mean, I've taught, you know, I've taught Beowulf, you know, as a as a classic text and 
But its classic text status really dates, you know, from after 1936, um, in terms of being part a recognized part of the of the canon as a as a work of literature. And it's got Grendel, who is an amazing monster, Grendel's mother, uh, and the dragon. And so, in a sense, that Tolkien brought the monsters back into the limelight even before he popularized them in uh, in his own stories. Right, the the monsters and the critics is his kind of famous you know intervention in Beowulf scholarship that made a made such a big impact. Let me pick a less important but uh, more recent element here. Um, the Magic the Gathering card game just did a, a yes. crossover mm-hmm. where they got you know the rights to do Lord of the Rings based cards, not based on the movies, right? Based on the books. So mm-hmm. they had you know a whole set of magic cards where you can play Aragorn and Frodo and Gandalf and Galadriel and Sauron uh, and battle them out in in magic. And I think there were elements here where they got really like they did some designs that were very clearly you know, based on, based on the stories, based on the characters in ways that felt, that felt appropriate and, and flavorful. And then there were a few misses for me that I think are kind of instructive about what it, what is hard to capture when you're doing a Tolkien adaptation. So there was a whole food mechanic and a lot of the Hobbit cards had to do with food. Uh, and I'm very pro this, uh, you know, there, there was also, of course, like, just like cute little things like the Witch King is indestructible, but then there's a there's a card you can play, you know, that takes away his indestructibility, representing the moment where Eowyn reveals that you know, she is no mortal man and she may hinder him. Um, but a, a central mechanic was called the ring tempts you. Uh, and the problem for me is the ring tempts you mechanic was good, right? Like you, it, it was, it, there, there was no like inherent downside to being tempted by the ring. You could just like keep getting tempted by the ring. It would make you more likely to win the game. And that feels very much like Boromir's perspective on the ring, not Tolkien's perspective mm-hmm. on the ring, right? Like the, the, mm. the head designer was asked about this. He's like, well, when we put a downside to the ring tempting you, people didn't want to play that mechanic. It's like, well, but if the mechanic, if you're making a mechanic based on the temptation of the ring, it's kind of pretty key to the story Tolkien wrote that the ring is tempting, but it's a bad idea to yield to that temptation. And that perhaps shows why, you know, a game that's essentially all about combat is always going to miss some important things in, in, you know, Lord of the Rings when it's adapting it. That's a really good point. And here, I mean, it's been longer since I've, long time since I've been playing D&D, but I was a very serious Magic the Gathering player when I was in grad school. Like, nice. I was really mm. into Magic the Gathering. Um, and I can date myself by the fact that I remember when Ice Age came out. Um, <laughs> yes, that, that was a while ago. Yeah, it was a while ago. Um, so I, w- and I, I did tournaments and things like that. It was, it was great fun. Um, that was a huge marker of my, my graduate school experience. Didn't last beyond grad school, but, uh, but it was fun. It was fun at the time. Um, but the whole point of Magic the Gathering is that it's a competition that you are trying to defeat the other person. And that, in a sense, is just about the least Tolkienian approach you could take. Because role-playing is different. Role-playing, you're unfolding all sorts of different stories and narratives that will have conflict, but there's lots of ways that can play out. But to have to be 
I'm going to defeat the other player, which is the entire point of Magic the Gathering. That's a dynamic that doesn't quite sit right with the central sort of aspects of, uh, of, of Tolkien's, Tolkien's world. It's one of the reasons why I think the, um, the Hobbit films just missed the, missed the boat entirely. I really, I, I love Jackson's um, Lord of the Rings films, especially the extended editions, but oh my word, The Hobbit. It's not an action adventure movie. It's just not. It missed <sighs> the point, I and, think. And the graphics sometimes look like a video game. Well, it looked like they were trying to do a, a pre-sell to have it be a, a, a you know, a Disneyland ride. <laughs> All right. So picking up on some of the, the themes that have been going on through this conversation, there's this word Tolkien-esque that is sometimes used to describe, you know, a subgenre of fantasy. And it really seems to be about fantasy aesthetics, the you know, elves and dwarves and magic rings set up. But assuming... Uh, you know, assuming that we're all right and Tolkien's artistic identity, Tolkien, Tolkien's kind of essence as a creator runs deeper than what's most easily imitated. What are some actually Tolkien-esque works that you would recommend? Uh, so I'm, I'm you know, putting this to my fellow podcasters. What are things that are really Tolkien-esque uh, that, uh, that we should all be aware of if we're lovers of Tolkien? Well, that's a really, really interesting question because I, I completely agree with you that the surface markers are not the key aspect. Um, it's the underlying ethos, I think, and the underlying sense of a, of a deep, rich story. And and so really the first thing that comes to mind as capturing this sort of worldview would actually be Lewis's um, Ransom Trilogy, the Cosmic Trilogy. Oh, interesting. And interestingly, Tolkien, although he wasn't a huge fan of the third one, he really, he loved Paralandra um, and he liked Out of the Silent Planet a lot. Um, and I think that trilogy, I mean, it has fantastical elements in it um, and it has a, a coherent kind of cosmology. It has a shared spiritual world because we know yeah. that the Eldila are actually angels. In, and this is very, very Tolkien-esque in the sense that in Middle-earth, the Valar are angels. Mm -hmm. That's what they are. Tolkien identifies them as such. Um, so I think the, the the cosmic trilogy is is very Tolkien-esque. That's great. Yeah, and that's a kind of that's less read than Chronicles of Narnia, but a really you know a really fascinating C.S. Mm -hmm. Lewis work. I'll throw in there as an answer to my own question: um, Connie Willis's time travel novels. She, she's a, she's a British science fiction author with a series of time travel stories and for me what's Tolkien-esque is there's a subtle but but powerful evocation of providence throughout the novels because you know the mechanics of time travel are sometimes opaque even to the time travelers but in reading them you get the sense that time itself right like the uh, the continuum has a sort of providential role right it lets time travelers through or doesn't let them through in ways that kind of work ultimately and secretly towards kind of redemptive ends. And, you know, some of them are very dramatic. Some of them are very funny that there's a lot of different genres Connie Willis explores, but that underlying theme makes me feel like she has a sort of, you know, Tolkien-esque mantle. Uh, and I would certainly recommend her to folks who are listening to this podcast. And it's interesting that, you know, I've, I've recommended something that's usually labeled science fiction. Now you've recommended science fiction. And it's very interesting that Tolkien himself 
was quite blasé about why the Lord of the Rings was called science fiction or fantasy. Hmm. Um, and I would have expected him to be very serious about this, but he he was really unbothered by it. He, he could call it either one. And he was a great reader of science fiction. He loved it. And he was quite proud of being, um, you know, member of the of the US Science Fiction Writers Association. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that that Tolkien-esque quality appearing in science fiction maybe allows it to escape the black hole of, oh, we must have little three-feeted beings and a magic item. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, that's not the point. That's, that happens to be in Tolkien's story. But really these, these big, greater themes can be explored in maybe equally well or better in science fiction. Tolkien-esque works, recommend. I don't have a good answer right now. Maybe if, if you'll let me, I'll, I'll think about it and uh, I'll get back to you. Yeah, the only thing I can add to this question is, I mean, I know I look to Tolkien as an example for how I run my home game. So I really have gone into deep, deep lore implications and world building with my wife, with people that I've played with. That might be my example because I've played with you and that's probably the most recent example I can think of this going beyond just, you know, the, the trappings and the, the wallpaper and the, you know, the visuals of it, um, but really digging into these questions of, you know, morality and, and you know, redemption and the questions of, of power and, and um, you know, faith. And it doesn't need there to be elves or spaceships or whatever you want it. It's more to the core of these deeper questions. So yeah, credit to you, Kurt. You've done a wonderful job with your world and the way we've kind of crafted a story um, with like our work game. But yeah. I mean, not to pat myself too hard on the back <laughs> on that one, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should. <laughs> well, it sounds like we want to get to maybe one last question that we could really sink our teeth into. I hope I've done a good job of covering the intersection of all three of these topics in this panel. And so I think the only one that I think could merit uh, meet this requirement would be this one. So early D&D tried to sidestep morality by making a scale of law versus chaos with neutral in the middle ground, uh, which eventually ended up perpendicular against the axis of good versus evil to create the Manichaean alignment chart and fueling pop culture debates of who ends up where on the TTRPG version of Hollywood Squares. A quoted 2005 internet forum had Gary Gygax himself declaring that it was perfectly in line for a lawful good paladin to kill innocent goblin babies because, quote, all goblins are evil. And if I understand correctly, even Tolkien wrestled with orcs, as we discussed earlier, and uh, Rings of Power had interesting things to say with uh, Adar, father, this uh, proto-orc elf character. So how do you think the concept of D&D alignment fits with Catholicism and Tolkien's perspective and approach to the world of fantasy? Big question. Well, I, I can sort of jump in and, and say, I think it depends on whether you view that alignment chart as descriptive or prescriptive. Hmm. Um, and I think that makes a big difference. And of course, the, the example you gave from the interview, like, well, the, the lawful good paladin killing innocent goblin babies, well, if they're innocent, it would be an evil act. But then that raises the question, well, well <laughs> we just talked about how there really aren't any goblin babies and there probably aren't 
innocent because of the way that he thought of them. So that that's one of those examples that doesn't actually serve serve its purpose. Um, if you think about the alignments as being sort of prescriptive, like okay, we're going to have we're going to have people of all of these kinds in the world, then it becomes very problematic because then it's like, well, have you been created to be lawful evil? Like, well, that that seems rather you know deterministic. But if you think of it as being descriptive, then it's quite helpful because someone who is chaotic evil is doing terrible things in a different way than someone who's lawful evil. Um, and then I think we probably all met people who are chaotic good. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, it's like, so I, I think it can be a useful, a really useful way of thinking through kind of the intersections of personality and moral sort of focus. I uh, sort of my beef with it now as a Catholic is the fact that in D and D, lawful good ends up making you feel like you're kind of a square, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Lawful boring, I've heard it referred to. <laughs> you know, and like Aquinas would say, right? The law uh, needs to accord with with divine law, right? There's no, there isn't that sort of generic lawfulness because there's many, there's different kinds of law. And if human law goes against divine law, it's no, it's no law at all, right? There isn't some cosmic axis of lawfulness and, and goodness. You know, there is a question of like, what do, how, how much do individual actions and kind of societal laws accord with the capital T truth that is God? You could take lawfulness and a more neutral way of, of saying kind of authoritarianism. Hmm. Authority, authority is good if it's based on the truth and goodness, well, law, then you get lawful good. But if you have authoritarianism for its own sake, you get totalitarianism, which is basically lawful evil. And Tolkien's, hmm. Tolkien's pretty alive to that, right? Because the whole depiction of, of kingship in The Lord of the Rings is actually a, a complicated one where you have the, you do have the true king, Aragorn, but you've got lots of you know, realms ruled by people who are more or less, you know, short-sighted or, or flawed, right? And the question of like what exactly good political authority looks like is uh, is vexed and you know not not simple in the Lord of the Rings. And one of the characteristics of of Indeed the Orcs in Mordor is the extreme regimentation. Mm. Um, I mean, it's it's you certainly see his uh, his wartime experience you know, coming out there. This sense of you know the boss is telling us to do these things and we're going to, you know, we're going to get our butts kicked if we don't do what the boss says. That's very much that sort of regimentation for its own sake. So he, Tolkien is not by any means just exalting authority qua authority. It has to be grounded in, in the true, in divine law, as you said, Alexei. But you could argue that if, if ever there's a character who's chaotic good, it would be Tom Bombadil. <laughs> 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 and I find interesting kind of jumping off of that exact point, especially in something like Lord of the Rings, is that while, okay, clearly the main characters, you know, at least the hobbits, they're, they're good. And you can argue the, you know, I'm sure people have analyzed the whole fellowship, like what would they be? But throughout their entire journey, they meet people who help them, hinder them, but, you know, mostly help of all across the spectrum. And I always found that interesting. Um, and especially thinking about you know, being a Catholic and how we perceive, you know, people we meet and, this, and how we react to stories, this idea that, you know, God didn't create us to be all the same. We're not all meant to worship the same, think the same, create the same. 
it would be a very boring <laughs> world and it kind of goes you know all sorts of questions of free will and, and whatnot but the beauty of the diversity that you you could be chaotic good whatever that means in your life or you know you need lawful good as well you need all types and and that's the beauty of you know the universal church like we are such a diverse beautiful collection of flawed <laughs> you know we're, we're all sinners but um it takes all all of us all kinds and yet we still find you know universal salvation in jesus christ and um you know, the church welcomes the diverse you know the spread of people that we are uh, the people the the saints the history like we weren't all just all created to be lawful good like there is there we have gifts that are different and uh that kind of goes i don't know if you want to look at this alignment chart but um one other point with that is especially in stories like tolkien's you know lord of the rings but also playing games like dnd my favorite moments are those that you're not when you're allowed to not be locked in to you know what you assign your character or you meet someone who's you know this and the, there is an ability if there is an ability to grow beyond that that you can shift you can change you're not locked into you know th there's a chance for redemption which is a very you know christian catholic thing that no one is beyond redemption no one is beyond corruption there there is a fluidity to that we're not locked into that and i think that is an extremely you know catholic thing that we see in in tolkien's work but um i think the best stories and the best games whatnot have that aspect my, my favorite characters are the ones that have redemption arcs and you know play against type play against what they were assigned they're the most powerful stories in my opinion and i think this podcast has done its part to help in that uh it, listeners if they remember the episode early season one episode on skink knows the lich beekeeper <laughs> And uh, my guest Liam Murray and I discussed about this lich, you know, why are they a beekeeper now? Why aren't they being like an evil plotting undead wizard? And it turns out the wizard had regrets about life and was considering giving up their lichdom uh, to find redemption. Um, so that was really cool. And then also guest of the podcast, coincidentally named Father Tom Bombadil, <laughs> created a revenant priest character who was undead but served a god who wished to redeem the undead and the deal uh, you know, he was a sinful uh, mortal in life, but then like on his had a, like a deathbed conversion moment. And then the God was like, cool. All right. You're my priest now. And you're going to go out in the world and you're going to redeem the undead creatures and bring them into rest and peace. But you're going to be the last one in the door. So I, I hope that people listeners of this podcast, you know, I don't have to like rub it in everyone's face that I'm a Catholic, <laughs> but I, you know, I help to encourage those ideas of the NPCs that we make on this podcast. And so I hope um, that people, you know, see that and they see that I get that inspiration from Tolkien, who himself is Catholic. And, you know, one of my panelists here has written two great, awesome books on it, which I know, you know, maybe we couldn't get quite into the nitty gritty of the Catholicism aspect of it. But I would certainly, you know, recommend uh, to articles that Alexi has written, uh, as well as articles and actual books written by Dr. Holly Ordway as well. So, um have we reached the end of the, are we going to close out the pub now? We're ready to, you know, pay our tabs and, and go home and, and back to our hearths and, and all that good sort of Sorry, stuff. Time for last call. It's, it's been, it's been a jolly time. And now, and now we must wend our way to bed, to bed as the hobbits sang. Well, I certainly want to give you all kudos and a huge thanks for being on the second ever uh, Parlays at the Platter panel style episode. 
And um, I just, I just want to give everyone an opportunity to plug whatever you got. If you've got websites or socials or books or other things you want us to know about and follow and any other, I since this will release at Christmas time, if there's any other Christmas greetings or well wishes you wish to impart to the world at large, uh, I want to leave that to you now. Oh, well, I'll say um, we've talked a lot about Tolkien. Um, I would encourage listeners to pick up my my newest book, Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. And I know that, you know, Curtis said you know, listeners may or may not be Catholics, may or may not be Christians. And this biography is written um, just as a biography. It's intended to help people learn about Tolkien and what what was important to him, what he believed. And it's not it's not going to try and twist anybody's arm. It's not saying you should become a Catholic. It's just saying, hey, this is what Tolkien believed. Um, and so if, if you're interested in that aspect of his faith, you're, you can read it and give it to people who are not Catholics and they'll learn about what he believed, but without being without being pressured about it. Yeah, folks can follow my work online at alexisargent.com or follow me on Twitter at Alexi Sargent. And if you're specifically interested in my, my book, Saintly Creatures, uh, you can get that from Word on Fire. And if you're interested in my game design work, uh, follow me at Cloven Pine Games. Uh, there's a Cloven Pine Games page on itch.io where you can buy some of my uh, some of my games, including Back Again from the Broken Land, the extremely Tolkien-inspired game of small adventurers sharing stories on the long walk home from an epic war. Yeah, this is so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. So Kurt's been bugging me forever to get my personal artwork online somehow so i'm working on it <laughs> maybe that'll be in show notes later um most of my work is, is graphic design and maybe i'm a broken record but i have to plug the uh, word on fire bookstore because i and my team the people i work with design a lot of books and there's actually one that i worked on uh recently and it's coming out i believe later this year uh for our uh, cinephiles mm. out there popcorn with the pope it's about the Vatican film list, and it's. Uh, it, I think it'll be a wonderful um, thing to, for anyone to pick up because it's essays on all of these wonderful films, and um, yeah, just just a good read. I think will be a lot of fun for a lot of people. So, yeah, check it out. Cool. Then I know it's weird because it's like Halloween, like tomorrow or something like that. Certainly out there, you know, the general feed listening to this certainly want to wish you Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and good tidings to all of you and yours. If you're listening to us as a Patreon listener, I hope you had a great Halloween and uh, All Souls and All Saints Day and all that. You should pick up Autumn Triduum as well because you get to play nuns who fight evil, uh, which is another game that Alexi's designed. So... That's another good game to pick up for uh, your Christmas tide as well, To since you're all with the family and you want to play games and stuff like that. So uh, so Dr. Holly Ordway, Alexi Sargent, and Catherine Spittler, uh, thank you so much for being on the panel. Can't wait to have you back on, making even more interesting NPCs. Excellent. Thanks for having Great. us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bar to rock on one, two, one, two, three, four.